Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 21, our first ESOL Congress preview episode with Vice Secretary Alexander Krog and Education Counselor Sven Franke. Plus, from the vault, conversation 32.3 from season three, part of our same-day coverage of last year's International River Congress. As we discussed in this episode, the ILC title has been retired and replaced by ESOL Congress this year. This week's vault comes from our same-day coverage of ESOL 2022. The episode, which was originally titled National as a complex disease, focused on two related items, the contributions that AI has made to the field and how much we've learned about disease etiology since a period five to ten years ago when people thought they knew they were what there was to know already. Listen as Jorn Schottenberg, Zobir Yunasi, and I dive into this topic in some detail. The episode has an excellent detailed introduction, so enjoy it. I'm just going to jump to the episode now. Jörn Schattenberg. There were some presentations we were also discussing treatment response biomarkers. And maybe anyone also saw the presentation given by Stephen Harrison where they did a post hoc exploratory analysis of the resmeterome data looking at changes in liver size and try to pair that with AI-assisted assessment of uh, liver fibrosis. And um, the way I looked at this is that when we see changes in liver size be related to defattening agents, there are a number of them being current explored. And I think there is an, uh, there's been some other presentations or will be where you, if you change the liver size, then the collagen bands within the liver are going to be sitting closer in the end. And um, if you use AI and not a pathologist's eye to assess, let's say, band width or band distance, this is something that comes up. So I found it was an interesting concept to start pairing liver morphology or the size of the liver with then something that a, a machine-assisted histopathological reading could assess. And uh, I'd just to be interested to hear what the colleagues think of that and it gets more complex. I think on the other hand AI assisted assessment is useful and there might be more things that are missing in the equation was my take home on that paper. Out of fondness and respect for my colleague Jorn, I got up at 7 o'clock this morning to go to a uh, session he was moderating. It was a sponsored session for Histo Index but they basically were showing us some of the same slides and one of the interesting points that came out of that conversation, of course Histo Index is intimately involved in, in histopathology and better uses of it, was that particularly a second harmonic conversion histopathology and NITs serve different purposes. You know, the NITs can tell you a lot about collagen burden, but they can't necessarily tell you a lot about the structure of collagen within the liver. The traditional pathology can do that, but there's all kinds of variability around it and some of the metrics aren't good. But when you then slap AI on that, you can see some clear and consistent patterns in terms of what happens even within the same fibrosis level that tells you that the patient is improving. And you then can take those two pieces and put it together. And I, that was something I'd not seen before. And I thought it was really, no, right, I'm a moderator, but I thought it was really fascinating and I thought it was highly instructive in terms of how people could think about this differently and then, frankly, what you can do in trials to evaluate a lot better. Zobar Yunasi. Well, I, I think there are three things that what Quentin just mentioned. One, machine learning and AI for pathology will do a couple of things that's really important. One, potentially reduce the variability of both enter and enter observer variability, which is going to be important for everything, including fibrosis stage, as well as, you know, even ballooning and other things. So I think that's going to be important. The second thing is that it changes the way we are looking at histology from a semi-quantitative assessment of stage one to two to three, which these are all semi-quantitative, to continuous sort of change, which is change in collagen percentage. I think those two things are important. That's it. You can't capture. But AI's 
sort of potential is a lot more than that. I think one thing that we haven't done so far and we, we should do into the point that Quentin is making is to combine different desperate type of data, what is actually clinical data, biomarker data, pathology data, with outcomes data, using AI to then have predictive model that can be developed and then validated. So that's the power of AI is to you can take large, large amount of data that are very different than we never think about them to come together, put them together, and then have a much more robust predictive model using AI. And I think that's what we are seeing. A couple of companies are doing this. The second harmonic generation or the path AI, they have just focused primarily on focusing more on sort of quote-unquote accuracy of the pathological reading rather than rather than other things. But as Quentin said, there is going to be better things that then could come out of this in the future when you have a better non-invasive test that could replace liver biopsy in five years, but you still will need to use AI to more accurately predict outcomes. I hearken back to um, how much smarter we are about the disease than we were three, four years ago, which was the first time I set foot here. I heard the comment, I've, I've been saying this for a while, but I heard the comment from people that I don't even believe listen to the podcast, that they've come to think about the idea that we may be in a better place than we had been if we had approved drugs three years ago in terms of how it's forced us to operate and what it's allowed us time to learn and that we're not thinking about what goes around and affects our backbone, et cetera. I don't know that Zobar you'd have better experience to say, and Louise, you'd have better experience to say from a different perspective. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I, I think that the way research and insight development has evolved in this space in the last three years is really a different thing than what you usually see. You know, much more holistic, uh, much more collaborative, much less mechanism of action driven per se. Not that mechanism of action doesn't matter, but we're not hearing big debates about this one's better than that one. If anything, what you hear a lot is about is combination therapy and how do we get everything to get put the best use together and stage stages of therapy and all that stuff, which it takes a lot of other diseases a long time to get to. Yeah, I, I think I would say five to 10 years ago, we made the disease sound very simplistic. We thought, in fact, I was, I, I heard it from some very important experts in fatty liver disease that we now understand the epidemiology of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Why spend more time? We could not have been more wrong. And the biggest evidence for that is that this whole area of placebo effect, the regression and progression, and what it drives that is completely changing our perspective in terms of the natural history of this disease. That's a lot more complicated than we, than we ever thought. The second thing that we learned in the past five years with a lot of drug failure is that when you go after targets that's based on animal model studies, you're going to miss this disease because this disease is not a single target disease. It's going to have to be multiple targets that you're going to have to engage. And the third is that no matter what you do to, for the vast majority of patients, you got to go after gold. The gold for this disease, the source of this disease is visceral obesity and insulin resistance. If you don't address that, it doesn't matter how you, you know what you're going to do at the upstream of trying to improve inflammation or improve ballooning, quote unquote. The disease is going to come back and you're not going to have the endpoint. I think that's what we have learned now, that we better actually address those issues and then really use combination of drugs. And I have to say one thing else that may not be very popular. This is not treatment of hepatitis C where you're going to treat someone for a period of time and you cure them and, and they'll be 
on. This is a disease that you have to treat and then maintain that actually gain by maintenance. So that may be you put up someone on a multiple drug regimen for a period of time and get that outcome that you desire. And that may be, you know, if it's biopsy, improvement of fibrosis or whatever, but then you have to maintain that. You can't just stop because it's like treating diabetes and treating dyslipidemia. You don't stop a cholesterol treatment after, uh, you know, six months or a year. So that is another shift in our mind. And I'm afraid that the drug industry is so fearful of sort of the potential cost to the payers when they actually say, well, you know, even if I do a year treatment, you may have to give more drug for the rest of the patient's life. But that's the reality we're going to have to deal with because this is not a virus to cure. This is going to be a condition to be managed in the long run. I agree with that with one caveat slash question. And we're going to post this in audio, not video. So the uh, I'm telling the audio people that Louise was nodding yes as you were speaking. I guess my question is this. A good friend of mine was taken off her antihypertensive meds by her physician last week after being on them for seven or eight years because she dropped 75 pounds and started walking 10 miles a day. So to the degree that this is a lifestyle disease or that for some patients it's a lifestyle disease. First of all, I don't think such a thing as a NASH or whatever nomenclature you use. There are several very different diseases and etiologies kind of tied up together. But for some of them that are driven more by lifestyle activities, I'm not going to say choices, you can make a choice to change your lifestyle. And in that population, I, I, I would suspect that there are going to be people who can go drug-free over time, even if they needed pharmacotherapy for NASH or for obesity as, as part of how they started to bring, uh, how they started to get after the issue. I don't know how often that'll happen, but I, certainly it will happen sometimes. Well, well, if you use, if you look at sort of long-term studies of weight loss and look at sustainability over five years, and there, there some of these are diet-related sort of weight loss with effective weight loss, uh, the Cochrane collaboration sort of uh, studies, and you follow those patients in long-term for within five years, only 16% of patients actually, 15 to 16% can maintain and sustain that weight loss. So I think if you do get the benefit of weight loss, which I think is going to be the heart of this disease, especially central weight loss, visceral weight loss, and you're off medication and you can maintain it, then fine, of course, you you may not need anything else. My suspicion is that if you don't change, because remember, to me, the lifestyle that we are talking about is a part of our culture. It's not a part of our, our you know, it's not an, it may be a, a, a choice, but there are things that are not our choice. You know, it's not just about calorie intake or you take high fat diet or low fat diet and high calorie and all of that. We've got hormones in our food stream. We have antibiotics in our food stream that actually could potentially mess up our gut microbiome. The activity issues and how we actually maintain active enough to have a muscle bulk that could, you know, help with sarcopenia, which is related to this disease. All of these things are much more complicated than just you know, that to, to help us maintain a healthy lifestyle by choice, because there's so many other outside sort of influences that can affect that. And and for people who actually make that, that change, and especially, in, it's probably true in the younger population, I see them truly changing their lifestyle. They, they, they don't need to become vegetarian or they go into certain sort of thing that they may have a better chance. But unless we change our complete philosophy of how we live and what we eat and what 
be put in our food stream in terms of antibiotics and hormones and all other and preservatives. I'm not sure how we are going to really truly address this. And that's the complicated part of it because that's not a medical problem. That's a societal decision and it gets certainly above my pay grade in terms of what would be effective to address this. It's such a complicated politically issue. That's my sort of second guessing of the fact that, that a lot of patients will actually achieve the efficacy that sustain that would be sustainable. I'm maybe I'm, I'm a little bit cap half full there and feel that unless we change it dramatically, people are going to just go back and revert to their environmental clues that basically pushes them into this lifestyle. We know that. I think that's right. You know, at least in the States right now, not to get into capital P politics or even small P politics, but we're at a point where people have a very funny definition of rights. The moment in my life, Zobear, where I understood how bad the problem you're talking about was, was after my first cancer diagnosis, I went into a patient support group. And the tumor was melanoma. So, you know, men and women. But a lot of the people in there were women, either because they were women who were the patient or because they were women trying to get their husbands to take the disease seriously. And my very least favorite comment, probably from the entire year of uh, 2011, was a woman who said that she couldn't get her husband to understand that you don't have a God-given right to eat fried green tomatoes with bacon three times a week. And his attitude was, if he wasn't free enough to do that, life wasn't worth living. And this was a guy who was probably going to die because he made that choice. Now, we've seen that really writ large in the last couple of years in the States. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded the conversation or send an email to questions at servingnash.com. Please remember, we will have extensive Easel Congress coverage, starting with a second preview episode posted June 14th, same-day coverage during the Congress, and finishing with two follow-up episodes, one on abstracts and one on basic science, posting on June 28th and July 12th. Next week, co-chair Jeff Lazarus will be our guest and join his other co-chair, our co-host, Jorn Shaw. To review this weekend's coming Innovations in Apple Care Conference in Barcelona. It should be fascinating. So until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye bye now.